This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with author Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. And um, let's uh, begin talking about Dr. Willie Bergdorfer. Um, now, he, he started researching this in, in 1980 or 81, uh, you know, and you describe how he's basically, you know, performing these little miniature uh, surgeries on these on these ticks and exploring, you know, their the the contents of their guts and so forth. So, uh, what did he find? Um, well, when he this is during the height of the the mania going on around Long Island Sound in Lyme, Connecticut, about what is making these people sick. So he took ticks, and he would take a little uh, tiny eye surgery scalpels and cut off the ends of their end of a leg and squeeze out the tick blood, which is called hemolymph. And then he would look at it under the microscope to see, you know, to try and find out, like, what is the organism making these people sick? So... During this discovery, he found several organisms. You know, he found uh, nematodes, those are worms. He found rickettsias, and sometimes he found babesia. But the rickettsias, uh, that's the bacterium from the family that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is very dangerous. He he thought that that was what was causing Lyme disease because it was in all the ticks around that area and almost all the blood taken from that original group of Lyme patients in Lyme, Connecticut. So he and the scientists at Yale were right in New York were writing back and forth, hallelujah, we think, you know, we've discovered the cause of Lyme disease. It's this little spotted fever rickettsia. And, but, you know, they wanted to make double, double sure. So there were a bunch of experiments, but then all of a sudden, Willie talked with a bunch of old military people. I have his phone log, so I saw that. And all of a sudden, everything about this spotted fever rickettsia, which I call Swiss Agent USA, just to give it a name, and uh, it disappears. It's never mentioned again uh, in any letter or paper. And so later when I talked to him, you can tell he feels guilty about leaving it out of a scientific paper because if you're a scientist, you, you you just put in all the knowns and unknowns because you never know if you're going, you know, if someone else will find that fact uh, important later on. So that starts. So, anyways, this Rickettsia Swiss Agent USA disappears, and then all of a sudden, a year later, Willie announces that the spirochete has caused all this disease, and so it's almost like the spirochete was unfairly blamed for Lyme disease, and, and that sort of sin of omission of the rickettsia is, my hypothesis is, that could be causing a lot of confusion with the Lyme controversy we have now, because people, the scientists are thinking, well, it's only Lyme disease. Willie, this great scientist, said it's only Lyme disease. But what I'm saying is there's this other organism that's in the ticks 
is in in the animals and the ticks and the people, and we're not even looking for it, and we don't even have a test for it in the U.S. It's right. commercially available. Now, uh, Bergdorfer was uh, from Switzerland, and and um, take us back to his work in in uh, Basel, Switzerland, in the, I guess the late 1940s, because he was he was working with somebody there on this exact same sort of research, right? Right. He was working on this same type of bacterium that is caused by, uh, that causes Lyme disease. It's a spir- It's called a spirochete, a Borrelia. So he was from a really poor family in Basel, and he, he went to a lecture at a local university and was enthralled by this Geige scientist who traveled the world over fighting tropical diseases, and he just fell in love with that profession, and he went and got a Ph.D. in medical zoology, which would be sort of like entomology now, the study of insects. And so he specialized in soft-body ticks and spirochetes inside of them and how they kill people. And then he got recruited basically by the U.S. bioweapons program, and he moved to Hamilton, Montana, where they studied tick diseases and fell in love with a local girl, and then all of a sudden realized that he'd been recruited into the bioweapons program, and he was consulting to the headquarters of bioweapons, which is in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And that was a massive program, almost as big as the Manhattan Project, just as secretive. They used the same rules of confidentiality. And his first job were infecting fleas with plague, that's the disease that killed like three quarters of Europe uh, during the Dark Ages, and feeding, force feeding ticks, uh, multiple dangerous disease bioweapons agents, and like trying to infect or inject 26 different species of relapsing fever into animals to see which ones cause the most serious disease. Anyways, these were all like contract experiments from the bioweapons program, and uh, you know, he he all of a sudden found him. He found the work interesting. It's sort of a Faustian bargain he made because, you know, he loved Hamilton, Montana. It's beautiful. It's like Switzerland, but without all the rules that <laughs> Swiss have. Right. And he had this local girl who couldn't leave the area, and he had a lot of freedom in the lab. I mean, he had to do these crazy dark Fort Dietrich experiments, but you know, he had his right. own assistants. He could do fun things on the side. I just wanted to back up a little bit, though. Okay. Uh, when he was, I guess it was sort of, the, it was the forerunner of the Nas- National Institute of the Health, of, of Health, the NIH, uh, that was funding his work at the, the Rocky Mountain Laboratory initially, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and, and well, that, that site is significant because that's really where they were, uh, there was someone who was first studying uh, Rocky Mountain fever. It was at that, that, that location back in the late 19th century. Is that? Is yeah, that Dr. Ricketts. I mean, right. the organism was named after Dr. Ricketts. And he died of the disease he studied, by the way. <laughs> ah. So they set up this, uh, this, uh, the Rocky Mountain Laboratory on that, uh, at that location. And uh, so now the NIH um, is, is funding this. And what they're trying to do at this point, though, is, is um, develop vaccines. For, for these tick-borne diseases, correct? Yeah. So it started out, you know, trying to mass-produce, especially yellow fever vaccine for the troops overseas in World War II. 
and Vietnam and Korea War, Korean War. And typhus. And typhus, yeah, right. which is a horrible disease. Yes, yes. Uh, and then um, there's a kind of a fateful trip to uh, Alberta. So here's the Canadian connection. And uh, this is, I guess, when he really sort of figures out, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering correctly, this is when he figures out that the game has changed. Yeah, I mean, it's Suffield Experimental Station, which is in Calgary, and or near Calgary, and he goes there, and there's it's the leading um, insect weapons people from the U.K. and Canada, and that's where the U.S. realized whoa, we're way behind in this entomological warfare program. So they were playing catch-up, and Willie, they were experimenting with Saren then in an open field, and so, you know, that's when Willie realized, okay, (laughs) uh, I'm not saving lives anymore. I'm figuring out how to destroy them. But he... uh, he stayed. I mean, he did, during his career, he had offers to leave, but he decided to stay. So it's it's interesting, at the end of his life, he has a change of heart, and he lets, you know, pesky journalists like me into his home and shares part of the information. So I feel like, in a way, he redeemed himself right. by finally coming clean. There was a scene, going back to this uh, this lab just outside of Calgary, where he's walking through this field, and he sees these... I think he described them as white mounds uh, and then discovers that these are dead animals that had been exposed to what, sarin gas? Yeah, so um, I I know they did open field testing at, of sarin at that time. I don't know if he actually was out there during that experiment, but I know he went out on the field and watched a demonstration. Um, I'm not sure exactly if it was sarin, but he did go out on the field because he talked about in his letters. He was a prolific letter writer, which is fantastic if you're trying to f- sort of uh, storyize a dry old Cold War story. So he had all these details that are fabulous about, you know, how cold it was there, how as he crossed the, bat- the border from America to Canada, oh my gosh, they gave him such a hard time because he he hardly spoke any English. He was German, and, you know, that was right after the war. And uh, they're not too into people named Wilhelm then. Ah, right, right. True enough. All right, we, uh, Chris, we're heading into a break. We'll come back, and let's talk a little bit about how uh, these pathogens were weaponized and used during the, the Cold War, for example, uh, Operation Mongoose uh, over Cuba and, uh, and elsewhere. Back with more of my conversation with Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Chris Newby is with us, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. And uh, this book is making news headlines because uh, it was cited by U.S. Representative Chris Smith, a Republican from New Jersey, um, as uh, you know, one of the reasons why he wants to push the Pentagon uh, to come clean about whether or not they were weaponizing ticks as biological weapons during the, uh, the Cold War. And uh, Representative Smith uh, cited... Chris Newby's book directly during the uh, 
a session in the House of Representatives. Again, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. How do we get a hold of the book, Chris? Well, it's available online pretty much everywhere. Amazon, um, all the the big chain bookstores, all the indie bookstores. Before and we, it's oh. available um, audio and Kindle and hard copy. Excellent. Now, uh, before we get back to uh, Dr. Willie Bergdorfer and uh, the Cold War, uh, since uh, the... Um, the representative mentioned your book in the House. What has been the reaction to the book? I mean, are you getting now a lot of calls from people in the mainstream media, or are they, they turning a blind eye? What's the reaction? Uh, mostly ringing off the hook, because the book had been out two months, and um, <clears throat> it was a mega hit amongst Lyme patients who have known something's fishy about Lyme disease is just so secretive in every way, you know. So when the book came up, they snatched it up like crazy and said, "I knew it, I knew it." But mainstream media completely ignored it. Uh, it was frustrating, but with one powerful congressman saying, "Hey, this book is well researched. There's something there, there, and the impacts of this disease, like everything we've been doing for the last over 30 years, isn't working. So maybe there is something to it." So um, now it's just I have a lot of uh, non-conspiracy interviews, which is nice because really my objective is to get this information out so we can get more funding and advance the research. Right. And now they can't ignore it. So They can't. Right. They can't. So I, w- I would say once a news story gets out in social media, the story sort of spins in some really weird ways, like uh, two really mainstream media sources like didn't even call me and quoted experts that didn't know you know didn't read the book so that's sort of frustrating but i guess that goes with the territory well hopefully you know the uh, as this uh, congressional probe heats up hopefully that'll hold uh, certain news outlets feet to the fire and they will uh, they'll come a knocking now we were mentioning um, the development of or the weaponizing of these pathogens uh, uh, or these ticks Talk to me about what happened uh, during Operation Mongoose. This was during the Kennedy administration and their attempt to assassinate uh, or Castro or at least disrupt the economy of Cuba. Yeah, this was a, a fascinating and random source that I ran across. But this guy was recruited str- straight out of college in Texas for his aptitude with languages by the black ops CIA arm of the military. And one of his first jobs, and he said it, he, he said he had done some really bad things in Vietnam, but one of his first jobs and the strangest jobs is they sent him out on a plane over the Cuban sugarcane fields, and when the pilot nodded to him, they, he, they told him to open these two cardboard boxes and shake it out um, out of the door of the plane. So he opens the box, and it's just filled with thousands and thousands and thousands of ticks. It's just like a Stephen King movie, right? So he screams an expletive and uh, dumps the boxes out the plane and thinks thinks nothing of it. He goes home. He has a four-month-old baby, and uh, the baby gets sick. They think, oh, it's just the flu. They go in. The baby gets They said, oh, it's just a virus. Come back later. The baby all of a sudden, like, turns into a, a rag doll, and the baby's not breathing, so they run him to the hospital. And, you know, it just turns out that one of the ticks, this is what he thinks, one of the ticks that 
were got on his clothes, he brought it back to the baby right after that, and he was bitten. And the the doctors that night said, we don't think he's going to live. But he did live and grew up to be an adult. He's alive now. And, um, you know, he, after that incident, he called up his ops commander from the CIA and says, hey, could this have been the chicks? I mean, could this have been this operation that got my kids sick? And he goes, burn your clothes, burn everything. You know, so it it was obviously a lethal weapon they used the ticks with some sort of lethal weapon, dumped it on Cuba, and, and anybody knows Cold War history knows that there were there were many many ways they tried to harm Cuba's oh, yeah. economy and Castro. And Exploding cigars and dolphins with bombs. It gets it gets pretty absurd, actually. We'll take another time out. Come back and uh, continue to delve into the secret history of Lyme disease and biological weapons with Chris Newby right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Chris Newby stays with us, the author of Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Just a quick programming note. Next week, uh, author Don Jeffries... Uh, you may recognize his name, the author of uh, Hidden History with a, uh, a foreword by Roger Stone. And uh, most recently, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, with a foreword by Ron Paul. He will be guest hosting uh, the program, and uh, his his guest will be uh, John Barber, who practically invented uh, reality television. You may remember that TV show, Real People. That was John Barber. And um, John is also a JFK assassination researcher of note, and he'll talk about the garrison tapes. That's coming up next week uh, with Don Jeffries, guest hosting right here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Chris, at some point, um, Bergdorfer is in in um, Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, uh, working in a lab. Take us there. What was he doing there? I mean, that was behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, that's that's the most intriguing part of the story that I I just hope now that the book's out I can carry on with that. But he the US military bioweapons program realized they're way behind on genetic engineering of bacterium where you could um grow them in tanks or or vats and freeze dry them and spray them over battalions of soldiers, enemies or cities, enemy cities. Um, but they needed to learn the art of genetic engineering. And so in Bratislava, what was Czechoslovakia then, um, he he was there several weeks uh, studying under a master of that there, Rehasek, Josef Rehasek. And so it's really there where uh, they were both on other sides and different sides of the Cold War. And you could tell they were both told to sort of try to pick the brains of the other guys so that they could get secrets and sell it to their or share it with their respective um, people. So anyways, Willie uh, was there. there was, they they wined and dined him. They got him really drunk. I mean, he nor- normally didn't drink much. So, you know, it was sort of my hypothesis that he may have been compromised by the Russians then. Um, and that was just a low point in his life. He left his family behind for a year. Um, but he brought those skills of sort of mixing viruses and rickettsials back to the Rocky Mountain Lab, lab and taught the, the people there that. And so, you know, I just, I mean, if you, you want to talk about the mysteries, it's like 
later on, he told me that the Russians stole two virulent agents from his freezers. So if there's, and and he died with uh, a secret bank account that none of his heirs knew about, and he had a, a Swiss bank account with a lot of money in it with no obvious explanation for where it came from. So one of my hypotheses is, or questions is, you know, was he compromised in that Bratislava trip? Um, was he a double agent? Was he a double agent? Right. He certainly was bringing information back, but did they turn him? I mean, he had intense money needs at that time, and then this Swiss bank account full of a lot of money. So were these samples these biological agents that were supposedly, air quote, stolen from the Russians, did he sell them in a time of weakness? And, you know, could that be related to the outbreak around Long Island? So that's the conspiracy angle that needs to be worked out. It right. may never be solved because, of course, that's a super secret program. And right. Neither side would want it out. Well, it just seems odd. I don't know if this was a, a, a situation where it was like, keep your enemies closer. Uh, here you had... Cold War adversaries working cheek by jowl in a lab behind the Iron Curtain, um, in a, you know, while they're, they're supposed to be, I guess, cooperating. But meanwhile, there's this non-shooting Cold War going on. It just seems very strange. I know it does. It does. Uh, so. How okay? So just because we're, we're tight on time here, take us to Plum Island. How does this connect to Plum Island? This level, I guess, it's a level four bio lab. Yeah, well, the, uh, Plum Island isn't level four, but that's where we all did, where the government, not we, but the government did anti-animal research. So they did have tick hatcheries there. They they studied livestock bioweapons like hoof and mouth disease, um, uh, foul plague, and they did have a giant tick hatchery there. I think I just told you that. And um so they had a Nazi called Eric Traub that sort of set that up. And the theory, the rumors have always been that this Lyme disease outbreak happened at Plum Island, which is right in the center of this sort of outbreak, if you look at it like a giant bullseye that's been spreading, and now it's going up into Maine and Canada. Um, it's, I think it's probable it could have come from there, but, and that's covered in Michael Carroll's Lab 257. My My theory is that it, came from the anti-human side of the biological weapons, which Willie was part of. And we released uh, like hundreds of thousands of ticks in army experiments that were made radioactive so we could trace how far they creeped, you know, supposedly, so we knew that, you know, how far they could creep if we dumped them on enemies. And that was on the Atlantic Bird Flyway in 1967, 68, and 69. And a year later, these creepy Lone Star ticks, which are really aggressive. They're like the terminators of ticks. They ended up on Long Island because they hitch rides on birds. And a bird can fly up the coast in just a couple days. So just to be clear, these were deliberately released or accidentally released? No, they were deliberately. So uh, this scientist, the Army paid him, and the Atomic Energy Commission, they paid him to, like, take a big couple acres, divide it into grids, released a thousand ticks in each grid, then go out every month with the Geiger counter and tell how far the ticks would spread. They would they would collect them in a square, mark it down, go back to the lab, see how many were the Geiger counter ticks. If they were big ticks, they would paint them with fluorescent paint, and then they'd put them back in the grid where they found them, and they'd go back month after month. And so they just released these ticks, 
And who knows what's in them? Because, you know, did he really check them for viruses or spotted fever? You know, and, and you know, so it's it told that that kind of experiment would never be approved by safety boards today. <laughs> I guess not. And, and, you know, and then we were doing all these open-air aerosolized tests with bacterium that can be carried by ticks. So there was just hundreds of these kind of little experiments to, to determine what's the best mix for the best weapons portfolio, and there wasn't adequate safety. So it could be a multitude of Army accidents or military accidents that caused the outbreak. It could be the aggressive ticks that came out, the spraying of live bacteria, and I document some of those uh, crazy experiments, and then it all ended up like a perfect storm. It could be coming from Plum Island, too, so it could be the perfect storm, and that's why we had these three freaky tick-borne diseases that showed up in 68. And now it's like an American Chernobyl. When you release these insects and these bacteria in an area where they've never been before, they last a long time. They're like perfect stealth weapon. Right, right. And uh, we've got about two minutes here. I mean, do do you have any hope that we will see Pentagon officials uh, subpoenaed under oath testifying about the Pentagon's role and perhaps weaponizing ticks? Well, it's it's a wild card Congress, as you know. Mm. It it has happened in the past in this 1977 Church report yes. where they disclosed a lot of those things. You know, during that report, they disclosed our flea and, and mosquito experiments. It is a little hmm that they never talked about the ticks until now. So maybe there's something there to hide. I don't know. Well, thank you so much for pushing the needle on this. uh, We all owe you a a debt of gratitude because uh, thanks to you in large measure, um, things might move forward. Uh, Yeah, I hope. Again, the book is Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Chris Newby, thank you so much for this. Thanks very much. Have a good evening. Thank you. All right. My thanks to Owen Wolf, Ryan White, back next week. Again, Don Jeffries in my stead. Be sure to listen to that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up after the top of the hour, Chris Newby, the author of a brand new book on Lyme disease called Bitten. And uh, she may have been responsible uh, for inspiring a U.S. House investigation into whether or not the Pentagon uh, created Lyme disease as part of a biological weapons uh, program. Uh, That's coming up in mere minutes. Right now, Franklin, uh, we're talking about the the, uh, Epstein case uh, with the author of the Franklin scandal, Nick Bryant, who's been all over the Epstein case as well. Um... The, uh, the Madeleine McCann uh, disappearance, uh, is it your opinion that, that this young girl was also snatched by a pedophile, pedophile ring? I don't know. I have not, I have not investigated uh, her disappearance. So, is this, um, is this case... Um, likely to drag on for some time in your estimation or or 
who's ever behind this, I'm guessing they would they would want to see it mopped up very quickly. They don't want it to see they don't want to see it spread and you know other people named and so forth. They just would like to see Epstein tried, convicted, and jailed and disappeared. Basically, what are your thoughts? Yes, it's kind of interesting that he's been arrested in the first place. I think those series of articles from the Miami Herald linking Acosta and Epstein and the sweetheart deal, I think that that compelled the Department of Justice to act. Um, But with Epstein, we just don't know what's going to happen. Um, I would like to see other powerful perps indicted, but uh, it's... It's equally plausible that Epstein kills himself or someone kills Epstein and um, makes it look like Epstein killed himself. So uh, all those possibilities are plausible. And so it's plausible that Epstein keeps his mouth shut and goes to prison for the rest of his life. I mean, all those uh, all those variables are in play here. And you don't see him you don't see him exchanging names for a lighter sentence. Um, I think Jeffrey Epstein was probably edified about his situation when he was in Europe, or maybe even before he went to Europe, like Lawrence King was, I believe. Uh, He was just scooped off the street and brought to Springfield uh, and Missouri at the, uh, there's a psychiatric, federal psychiatric hospital prison there. And, uh, And I think he was told that, you know, Larry, you've done some good work for us, and if you keep your mouth shut, we'll, you'll do some time, and we'll take care of you. That's what happened. Um, the same deal might go with it for Epstein. I mean, we just don't know at this point. And um, now with the, uh, you know, the renewed interest in the Franklin uh, scandal because of your book, because of the Epstein case, do you think that, that aspects of that are going to be reopened? I would very much like to see that. And uh, it's long overdue that the media uh, help these kids. And there was a lot of kids that got molested in the Franklin scandal. And law enforcement has basically said that no children were molested in the Franklin scandal, when actually scores were. That network was active for about eight years or so, flying kids around everywhere. So, um, so yes, I think that there'll be some renewed interest in the Franklin scandal. And, and I, I hope that there's a broader understanding of this so that states and actually the federal government can start retracting the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse. Right. It's long overdue that, that we get rid of the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse. Amidst all of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the leaks from the DNC uh, during uh, the WikiLeaks uh, scandal, and, you know, we started to learn about this Pizzagate thing, uh, which, again, the mainstream media said was, you know, a conspiracy theory and it was totally false. I mean, and, and you know, that particular uh, case may well have been, but the narrative was right. Um, but, or now, do you think there may be more to that story than than we know? That that maybe there was something to Pizzagate. Um, I'm agnostic on Pizzagate. I 
investigated it a little bit. I thought I had a lead. Um, the lead kind of disintegrated. So at this point, I'm agnostic on Pizzagate. I try to be agnostic on most things and um, and keep my mind open. That's why I ended up pursuing the Franklin scandal and also Epstein when people were just writing off as a conspiracy theory. Right. But again, the idea that, okay, so this particular rest- restaurant may not have been involved, uh, but the, the, in other words, the, this, this particular story wasn't factually accurate, but the narrative, the overall narrative is true. Is that fair to say? Well, we've, well, we've seen power broker pedophile networks with Franklin, with Epstein, with uh, Sir Peter Heyman, Jimmy Seville. Um, we've seen them in Belgium, as I said, in Portugal, and a recent one in Italy. Um, they're all over. So, yeah, I mean... If you're saying that Pizzagate was just kind of delineating a power broker pedophile network, I would say that um, there are power broker pedophile networks, absolutely. But I just, I'm still agnostic about Pizzagate. I, I, I investigated a little bit, and uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't find any leads to corroborate it. This is a difficult question. I, I don't know if this, you know, this is something that you care to even address, but we often hear in relation to these child sex trafficking rings, there is an element of satanic ritual. Have you come across any evidence of that, uh, either in this, the Franklin scandal or in the, uh, the Epstein case? Um, it's uh, uh, three of the victims in the Franklin scandal said that there was ritual abuse involved. Um, I haven't, I've looked for it in the Epstein case and I haven't been able to find it. So, um, that's kind of where we stand at this point. And then, but I was looking for it. Right. And, and the, the satanic element in the Franklin scandal, uh, the ritual abuse, I mean, was there, was there mind control in, uh, uh, involved here? One kid in the Franklin scandal claimed to be uh, a victim of mind control, and he was multiple personality disorder. Um, a lot of the information that he told me was correct. So, um, and there, and in the Franklin scandal, I talk about the extreme abuse survey, which was a questionnaire that was filled out by scores of extreme abuse survivors, and. A number of them said that they had been victims of government mind control. Um, certainly, and even after, uh, government mind control programs supposedly ended in 1972. And a number of the people that uh, took part in the extreme abuse survey, uh, their mind control was definitely after 1972. So that would be kind of interesting. I think that we need a congressional investigation into whether or not uh, mind control is still being perpetrated on on, on children in the United States. I, I, I do believe that a congressional uh, investigation would uh, uh, an uncompromised congressional investigation could give us the ARNA. That would be great. So this Epstein case, as horrible as it is, may in fact just be the tip of the iceberg. Fair? Is that a fair statement? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of icebergs. And uh, Epstein would be the tip of one iceberg. Nick, again, how do we get a copy of the Franklin scandal? 
uh, you can go to the website, franklinscandal.com, or as I said earlier, you can um, get one through Amazon, the Evil Empire. Nick, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. No problem, Richard. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Nick Bryant. All right. Bye. Chris Newby is next, talking Lyme disease as a biological weapon. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a minute. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hiya to those of you tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey there to all of you listening on your mobile devices via the Zuma Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, those of you streaming us on zoomerradio.ca, and those listening on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, just a short reminder, Occulticon 2019 is coming. That's happening September 13th to the 15th up in uh, Holstein, Ontario, just about 90 minutes northwest of uh, where I'm sitting on the event Mythwood, sorry, the Mythwood event campground and a 61 acres, beautiful, beautiful spot. I'll be presenting Saturday the 14th. And uh, other speakers that weekend include Scott McClellan from Carnival Diablo, Canada's oldest um, uh, traveling circus sideshow. He'll be performing his unbelievable paranormal show. Uh, Steve Santini and his exhibit of artifacts from the Titanic and other shipwrecks. Christian Dicadieu from Paranormal Contractors. Uh, and many, many more. You can camp out for the whole weekend or just stay for a day. September 13th. To the 15th, Occulticon 2019. I'll be there speaking on the, uh, the Saturday. To get tickets or more information, just go to occulticon.com. Occulticon.com. My next guest may be responsible for inspiring a new U.S. House investigation looking into whether the Pentagon turned ticks into biological weapons. The probe is being pushed by Representative Chris Smith, Republican from New Jersey, who cited a new book that claims military bioweapons specialists stuffed ticks with pathogens to cause severe disability, disease, and even death to potential enemies. House lawmakers passed an amendment to a federal defense spending bill last week that calls for the department's inspector general to discover if Pentagon scientists turned insects into living weapons between 1950 and 1975, during a debate on the House floor Thursday, Representative Smith said, quote, For years, books and articles have been written suggesting that significant research has been done at U.S. government facilities, including Fort Detrick and Plum Island, to turn ticks and other insects into bioweapons, end quote. He cited, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, which contains interviews with the late Dr. Willie Bergdorfer, who discovered the bacterium that causes Lyme disease and worked for the department as a bioweapons specialist. The book by Stanford School of Medicine science writer Chris Newby blames, or rather claims, claims Bergdorfer 
and other scientists work to infect ticks, fleas, mosquitoes, and other blood-sucking pests with viruses causing human diseases. It also questions if Lyme disease was inadvertently spread by the experiments. Chris Newby joins me now. Hey, Chris, how are you? Fine, thank you. I've had a busy, exciting week. I'll bet. Now, um, to what extent were you aware that Representative uh, Smith from New Jersey had read Bitten and that would mention it in the uh, proceedings in the House of Representatives? Well, uh, about two weeks ago, I got a call from Chris Smith on a Saturday. You know, I just picked up the phone and says, hello, this is Representative Chris Smith. I wanted to tell you I really like Bitten and... Uh, you know, I think I'd like to do an investigation into it. So it was a surreal event because it really validated the five years of research that went into the book. Uh, and to me, it wasn't conspiracy theory. I mean, there's certain things that are backed up by solid, solid facts. And then uh, a few days later, it was just surprising that he had slipped that call for an investigation into the defense appropriations bill, which everybody in the world watches you know, because it's a really important yes. um, pool of funding. And so uh, then everything blew up because all of a sudden, you know, one person said, this is not a conspiracy. This possibly is not a conspiracy. This could be real and it's worthy of an investigation. And and for many of us, you know, who, who toil in these uh, in this arena, let's say, uh, it is it is vindication. I mean, we've been sort of hinting at this and talking to people who have been hinting at this, and and uh, but now you all have it down, sort of chapter and verse, uh, in in bitten. Uh, first of all, take us back. I mean, the book begins really where it all begins uh, in terms of the United States and, and the outbreak of three strange diseases back in 1968. Talk to me a little bit about what happened. Well, um, right around Long Island Sound, that's five states. That would be New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, uh, Rhode Island, and and, uh, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, sort of Martha's Vineyard area. All of a sudden, these three freaky new germs appeared. So uh, there was uh, the very first case of human, or the second case of human babesiosis in the U.S., and that's a parasite that usually only affects cattle. It can be carried by ticks. There was this little bacteria called a rickettsia. It's sort of it's from the family that causes the most deadly tick-borne disease, which is Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It gives you little spots all over, and uh, it can put you in a coma in 14 days. And there was an alarming number of cases of that in 68, 69, and 70. And then uh, then there was this other new mysterious disease, which they called Lyme arthritis and it gave people brain fog and swollen joints. So it was, it, it was all quite unusual. So investigation started, and uh, Willie Bergdorfer, who was our, probably our number one tick researcher then, was put on the case to investigate those three things. And so the book starts out, well, it, it talks about that investigation. If you look at the public story, it starts in 80. Willie Bergdorfer looked in a microscope at tick guts, saw the Lyme spirochete. Uh, it was a miracle. He, you know, that was what was making the people sick. But I went farther back, you know, to 1968 and said there was three freaky diseases. It's unusual. It seems unnatural. Right, right. And, that and three germs would spontaneously appear. 
Right. And, and Rocky Mountain uh, fever, uh, sometimes called black measles. I mean, uh, th- that, that occurred in, in Montana, you know, back in the, uh, the 19th century when, you know, people were, uh, pioneers were settling there. Uh, what, what, pray tell, was the black measles or Rocky Mountain fever doing in Connecticut, New Jersey, New York? I mean, that's the big question, obviously. Right, right. And and so I traced that research project, and I mean the book started when I I heard that Willie Burdorfer said that he thought that outbreak was caused by a biological weapons release. He and and so then that started it because he was old, uh, you know he could be senile. I, I don't know what his motivations are. Then as I started digging into the investigation, I realized he had been in the bioweapons program for two decades. So all of a sudden his cred went up on saying this thing because he was our lead tick researcher. He was famous because he just said that Lyme disease was caused by this Lyme bacterium. And here he was saying it was something else that I covered up. Right. And that and, was, as you say, that was uh, that was kind of discredited or dismissed by skeptics. They were saying, well, he's in the latter stages of Parkinson's and, you know, who knows what's what's going through his his mind he's just delusional or or who knows so it was kind of brushed under the the carpet or swept under the carpet yeah but um you know uh most of the book is or maybe half the book is about willie's life mm-hmm. you know to exploring how he got sucked into the program in 1951 in the US um he really was a very good scientist uh not someone to weave tales for attention. Um, and so, you know, my, I lay out the case of the experiments he did, how it related to the larger strategy of the Pentagon. Um, I was totally surprised at how this tick-borne research program had been kept a secret for so long. And we will circle back and get into uh, yeah. Willie Bergdorfer, but I want to I get to your personal history because this story is personal because both you and your husband were bitten uh, by ticks, I guess, around Martha's Vineyard. Just tell me about what happened there. That was in 2002, and this is this ended up being the area where the original outbreak was, pretty much at Ground Zero, pretty near the infamous Plum Island. But we, my husband and I and our two boys who were in medical school, we went to a week-long vacation in Martha's Vineyard uh, we came back to California, and a week later we found we were sicker than we'd ever been in our whole life. Uh, and it turned out we had uh, we had bitten by tick, been bitten by ticks. I didn't see them. Mine was behind my hair on the back of my head. I never saw it. And we had gotten two really nasty tick-borne diseases. One is the Lyme bacterium, and the other one was the Babesiosis. That's the cattle parasite. It's very malaria-like. It attacks your red blood cells. So it took us a year and $60,000 and 10 doctors to get diagnosed before we finally found a Lyme doctor who knew what she was doing. And then it took five years to get over. So I was a, I'm an engineer by training and a, a science writer by profession. And I was just curious. It's like, I'm supposed to be in a really good area for doctors. How could they miss it? I mean, we had classic symptoms once, you know, once I realized what they were. Uh, how can the system be so broken? 
So I started uh, looking into it, and, well, like your listeners, curious, open-minded. Uh, I did a film on Lyme disease called Under Our Skin. Yes. And it did really well. It was an Oscar semifinalist, but it really interviewed many, you know, hundreds of patients and told the patient side of the story and showed it. It's a, a large epidemic of tick-borne disease patients were being abandoned by the medical system because whatever disease they had didn't fit the textbook description of what Lyme disease is supposed to be. So that started that mystery. Right. And then, then, I, then, then I got this really good job as a science writer at Stanford. I've been there nine years. It's like, uh, I'm done with Lyme. Uh, I'm moving on. Uh, do I'm going to do happy science stories, and then I got this uh, this admission videotape from Willie Bergdorfer saying, "Yeah, I think Lyme disease is a bioweapon," and it was shocking. You know, I just remember sitting on my back porch and taking deep breaths. It's like the rumors had been there. This was direct proof from the scientist, a respected scientist, who had the most to lose. So I said, well, uh, this is going to be inconvenient, but I'm going to I'm going to follow this story through to the end. And that's how the book started. Right. And um, you do a wonderful job in the book sort of explaining how these ticks operate. Uh, it's, it's actually quite chilling. You, you talk about how this one particular the one that uh, uh, bit you, you know, the, how they, they kind of. They stand up on their hind legs. They attach themselves to, a, say, a, a blade of tall grass. And they can wait there for days, weeks, or even months, you know, and, and are kind of probing the air with their, their, their forelegs, uh, looking for, for carbon dioxide or, or some sort of, uh, you know, evidence that there's a, a, a mammal coming by. <laughs> Just talk to me about how it, how, it, how it bites people and how it infects people. Yeah, so it's uh, a bug that's been perfected over 120 million years, way longer than human beings have been here, and they have perfected the art of taking a blood meal. So they, the deer ticks that bit us, they were on the top of a blade of grass. They sensed uh, carbon dioxide emitted from your skin of a passing mammal. And when they do that, then they and they feel you brush up, brush up against the grass. They have these little, they breathe from little feelers from their legs. By the way, uh, they don't have a nose per se. So when you brush up against them, they have these little round sticky pads on the tips of their feet, and then there's two velociraptor raptor claws. So they just hook onto you with the sticky pad and the claws, and then they creep very slowly you know, up your body to find a warm spot with blood vessels near the, the skin. Then they start this really sophisticated drilling operation that is just an engineering marvel. So they, they have a three-part jaw. And first of all, they just start gently on there. So you won't feel it when their two sort of harpoon blades start digging a hole into your skin. Oh, lovely. And then they inject uh, two chemicals into the hole. One keeps the blood from clotting uh, so it doesn't scab over when the mammal's um, body doesn't try to reject this invader. And then the other one is once it reaches a blood vessel, then it releases something into the bloodstream that suppresses your immune system for a week or more. 
And then the other thing you need to know is there isn't just Lyme disease inside these ticks. There could be many other diseases. There could be viruses, other bacteria like spotted fever, the parasites like babesiosis or babesia, like I mentioned before. So those germs like get into your bloodstream and they have a head start because your immune system has been suppressed by the tick saliva. And that's where you have the potential to get really sick because of what I call a germ gangbang on your system. Right. And I mean, there's a a myriad of confusing uh, symptoms uh, that that come along with this, depending, I guess, on where these pathogens hide out in your body, correct? Like it can present so many different ways, arthritis, uh, even Parkinson's, I'm told. Yeah, that would be maybe um, chronic or late-stage Lyme disease. Uh, Well, that's not 100% proven with Parkinson's, but... uh, Clearly, the Lyme disease bacteria invades your brain and can cause all sorts of freaky neurological symptoms, depending on where in your brain it is. And it can cause heart problems, uh, tremors, twitches, uh, you know, brain fog, uh, inability to do simple tasks. So, um, it's none of these diseases are really bad if you treat it right away, but the problem is that we don't have really good tests for the early stages when it can be cured cheaply and, and quickly. And you cite some pretty harrowing statistics, something like 43,000 uh, cases that, re- that, are, that we know of every year. That's a 2017 statistic. But you say it could be much, much higher, like on the order of 10 times higher. Yeah, that's the CDC's new estimate because they know they miss a lot of cases. And uh, they haven't been really that meticulous about tracking where the ticks are going and what the diseases are in the ticks. So 430,000 cases a year, that's over 1,000 cases a day. Uh, Any way you cut it, that is uh, an epidemic of incredible proportions. Yeah, it's more than AIDS cases per year, new AIDS cases, HIV AIDS cases per year, and yet... These, the people with the disease are sort of marginalized and minimalized, and the establishment, until Britain came out, has been trying to deny the seriousness of this epidemic. So, I mean, that's the good thing about the book, is I just think it will really raise awareness and make people think twice, like maybe we need to fund this, these diseases much more than we are. And uh, a, a particular concern as well are the the um, the post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome sufferers. Tell me a little bit about what that, what that is. Well, the, the people that can, the academic medical researchers who have specialized in tick diseases say, you know, Lyme disease is easy to diagnose, treat, and cure, and, but they don't have a, a test that really is reliable in the first month. So if you've had Lyme and possibly these other co-infections, you can become seriously ill after a few months. And then you're, the tests are, a lot of them are indirect tests, so they tie up the antibodies. Those are the things that defend, they attack the germs in your, um, in your bloodstream, in your body. So you, you might not show up in the test, and then you go on to get really sick with this mix of dangerous tick-borne diseases. And... So the mainstream academia, academia seems to be 
denying that those people really have an infectious disease or a combo of tick-borne diseases. And so a lot of them are, you know, they can't file for disability because they don't have a legitimate disease. There's no ICD-9 medical reimbursement code for chronic disease. And so they get put in fibromyalgia buckets or MS or chronic fatigue or arthritis, and they they get uh, they're given drugs that treat the symptoms but don't get at the root cause, which is there are some germs in your body and you need to use antimicrobials to kill them. So this has created a huge controversy for the last 30 years. And uh, what I hope my book does is like raise awareness is it's not just Lyme, it's all these other tick-borne co-infections. And oh, by the way, one of them might be an engineered germ, which would explain by why sometimes it's hard to cure these chronic entrenched infections in people. Then that would that you know the academia is calling that post Lyme disease syndrome. Right. Which I I mean anyone who's ever been told by a doctor they have a syndrome it makes them really mad. Exactly because there's obviously a, as far as the, the the doctors are concerned there's a uh, a component of psychosis uh, there. Right. Uh, we're approaching a break. When we come back, we'll we'll talk about Dr. Willie uh, Bergdorfer. Uh, I just wanted to mention, uh, heading into the break, that um, I sort of became familiar with. I mean, I knew about Lyme disease, but um, we had a um, I had a, 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 an author and a I believe she was the editor of the Canadian version of Vitality magazine, Helgi Ferryon, and um, she said that she contacted uh, Health Canada to, to find out information about number of cases and um, was basically shut down and, and told it was an, a national security issue. Um, anyway, I just thought I would leave you with that thought. We'll come back and continue to discuss uh, Lyme disease as a biological weapon with Chris Newby right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my YouTube live stream editor and producer. Please note, however, that there is no live stream tonight on the YouTube channel. They will return the second week of September. However, all of the shows end up on the YouTube channel within a few days, even when we don't live stream. And again, the YouTube channel is Strange Planet. Child sex trafficking expert Nick Bryant is standing by. He joins me in the first hour. Hour two, Chris Newby is the author of a brand new book on Lyme disease called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. On July 8th, 
Federal prosecutors charged financier Jeffrey Epstein with one count of sex trafficking of a minor and one count of conspiracy to commit sex trafficking. Now, per the indictment, over the course of many years, Epstein, the defendant, sexually exploited and abused dozens of minor girls at his homes in Manhattan, New York, Palm Beach, Florida, among other locations. The document also notes that in order to maintain and increase his supply of victims, Epstein also paid certain of his victims to recruit additional girls to be similarly abused. The prosecution alleges that he sexually assaulted girls as young as 14 years old. Epstein has been known to associate with politicians on both sides of the aisle, members of the British royal family, including Prince Andrew, and numerous celebrities and other people in the public eye. Nick Bryant has been researching and writing about child trafficking and trafficking networks for 18 years. He was the prime mover in uploading Jeffrey Epstein's black book to the internet. You can find that at gawker.com. Nick also uploaded a myriad of Epstein's passenger manifests to the internet, also to be found at gawker.com. And according to victims of Epstein, they were pandered to Epstein's powerful cronies. But the indictment against Epstein doesn't name the additional perps who molested the underage girls pandered by Epstein. So unless additional individuals are indicted, the Department of Justice continues to be part and parcel of a cover-up. Nick Bryant is the author of The Franklin Scandal, which is the only book to tell the tale of tale of interstate child trafficking network and his and its cover-up. The network elucidated by the Franklin Scandal bears eerie similarities to the Epstein trafficking network. Nick's writing has recurrently focused on the plight of disadvantaged children in the United States, and he's been published in numerous national journals, including the Journal of Professional Ethics, Journal of Applied Developmental Psychology, Journal of Social Distress and Homelessness, the Journal of Healthcare for the Poor and Undeserved, Underserved, my apologies, Underserved, and Journal of School Health. He is the co-author of America's Children, Triumph or Tragedy, Addressing the Medical and Developmental Problems of Lower Socioeconomic Children in America. He's also contributed a chapter on child trafficking to global perspectives on dissociative disorders, individual and societal oppression, a book addressing various facets of dissociative disorders that features chapters from an international group of psychiatrists and psychologists. Nick Bryant, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. Glad to be with you, Richard. Just take a minute and explain, uh, tell us a little bit about the Franklin scandal that you covered and, and how, as you, as I mentioned, it, it bears an eerie similarity to the Epstein case. Uh, the Franklin scandal was a book that came out in 2009, and I had researched it since 2002, so I spent seven years researching and writing it. And what I uncovered with the Franklin scandal was an interstate trafficking network that flew kids from coast to coast. The epicenter of the network was in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, but there was uh, there, there were two pimps, uh, Lawrence King and Craig Spence. And Craig Spence had a house in Washington, D.C. that was wired for audiovisual blackmail. So they, a lot of the parties would go down at this house. And, and, and the blackmail operation was, was definitely in full swing. Now, with Epstein, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he has not 
so far named the other perps, those that were uh, basically frequenting his his various uh, locations, and also the uh, that were aboard the Lolita Express, and that were on the uh, the island in the Caribbean. Um, from what you know of the case so far, do you expect that he will name names as some part of a plea bargain? Um, that all depends upon if the Department of Justice wants to pursue this to its logical conclusion. In the Franklin scandal, uh, one of the pimps committed suicide, and the other pimp kept his mouth shut and did 10 years for embezzlement. And then he has lived a pretty uh, cushy life since he got out of prison. So it's difficult to know how this is going to play out. I'm inclined to think that the the government is probably going to cover this up or else they would have indicted additional perps. But there's a lot of journalists digging into it right now. I think um, our great hope to have this fully uncovered lies with journalists. Yes, there was some terrific work done by the Miami Herald and also um, Mike Cernovich. Um, my question, though, is, and others, uh, obviously, and, and, and you've been on top of this as well, but my, my question would be, where was the mainstream media back in uh, the mid-2000s, 2008, when the stories about Epstein started to surface and everyone who was trying to get at the truth were basically shouted down and called conspiracy theorists by the mainstream media. Well, you're talking to one of those. Um, The media is a strange thing. Six corporations own 90% of the media that Americans imbibe. And those six titanic corporations could be broken up with antitrust suits. So... There generally seems to be a detente between the mainstream media and the government. However, there's a lot of journalists digging into this right now. Um, I think that some of them feel like they are unfettered. They know that there's a larger network out there. That, and it's starting to come out that Epstein was probably an intelligence agent and that there was blackmail going on. So... Now that that is starting to surface, it's opening people's minds. I, um, it's kind of interesting. I, I was kind of ostracized from the mainstream media when I was pitching the Franklin scandal. And I was, and then I pitched the Epstein scandal and I, I, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't get into the mainstream media. Um, even though I live in New York City and friends of mine are in the mainstream media. I remember pitching this. I remember pitching the Franklin scandal to a number of editors, and I looked into their eyes, and there was a, there was kind of a fear. And what was happening was cognitive dissonance. Child abuse is among, or if not the most horrific of crimes, and these editors had to make a call. You know, should I pursue this? This could be pretty ugly, it might even hurt my career, or should I just say Nick Bryant is crazy and a conspiracy theorist? And every editor decided to say that Nick Bryant was uh, crazy and a conspiracy theorist. 
the only per, the only entity that published my work uh, on Epstein was Gawker, which is known to be kind of a a moral website. But they were the only ones that had the moral fortitude to uh, publish the Black Book and the Passenger Manifests. It's uh, it's and now there's open season has been declared on Epstein. So now you've got all kinds of journalists digging into them. It's 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 a pretty interesting phenomenon to me. Let's talk about the, uh, the the black book. First of all, how did you come into possession? And if you, I'm not asking you to name sources, obviously, but just give me kind of the the chronology, and then uh, you know you know what what sort of damning evidence is is in there, and will that come up in the court case? Um, the Black Book should. I got the Black Book. I was spelunking in Florida uh, some years ago, and um, I was fortunate enough to get the Black Book. And that basically provides a roadmap for an investigation, if you want to dig into Jeffrey Epstein. And his house manager was trying to sell the Black Book, and he got set up by an FBI sting. And he had circled people that he had said were privy to Epstein's pedophile network or part of it. And there's a number of very prominent people that are circled in Epstein's black book. It It is said that um, he was a fixture in, in Palm Beach, and, and I'm, I'm sure in certain circles in Manhattan as well, uh, that, you know, he... He had access. He had influence. Uh, there was a famous dinner at his Manhattan home, supposedly after uh, his arrest, uh, after he had served time, the first time in Palm Beach at the uh, the country club uh, there. We won't call it a prison. Um, and some Actually, other, it was a county jail. A county jail, right. But I, I, meant, I referred to it as a, a country club because, I mean, he should have served time in a state prison. Um However, actually, he should have served time in a federal prison, but that's beside the point. Right, right. Or a state prison, I guess. Sure. I I mean, after the first, you know, the first charges. Uh, But that that dinner, uh, apparently Prince Andrew was there and that there were a number of people that showed up. I've heard names like Katie Couric and George Stephanopoulos and Woody Allen and others. Um, How do we... I mean, it, it, we have to be careful here because there are people that are associated with with him because he was simply, you know, seem, seemingly ubiquitous uh, in in uh, Palm Beach and in, in certain circles in New York, and and people who who really had no idea what was going on. And then there are those who were indeed perpetrators. Uh, are there is there any any of those names that kind of appear in the black book? And so, you know, they may be guilty by association. I just. I want to be careful here when we start, you know, naming names. Yeah, it's it's difficult. The names that you mentioned uh, don't appear in the black book. Okay. But when those people had dinner with Epstein, it would have been impossible for them not to know that Epstein was a convicted child molester. It would have been impossible for them to know, especially Katie Couric. I mean, she's in the media. Right. And uh, Woody Allen and George Stephanopoulos is in the media. So it would have been really impossible for them not to know that Jeffrey Epstein was a convicted uh, child molester. 
And the manifest that you also, uh, that was also published uh, by, by Gawker, uh, did this come from yes. the, the FAA or did it, where did it come from? Uh, it came from a source. Okay. And it's been... And, go ahead, sorry. Yes, go ahead. Uh, it came from a source and um, I was fortunate enough to get it pretty early on in my investigation. Would would it also though mirror the uh, because it would also be an official FAA manifest? I'm guessing would it would it be one and the same? Um, I believe it is, and it lists the various people that were on the planes. Um, sometimes it, it lists their first names. Sometimes it lists their initials. So I'm surmising that in those cases. Those are probably underage girls. And are these flights uh, anywhere that the, the you know the plane that was later dubbed the Lolita Express? Uh, are these flights to uh, the island only, or are they flights anywhere? They go all over. Epstein was uh, was very peripatetic. Those, those passenger manifests go all over. And um, former President Bill Clinton said that he had no knowledge of what was going on and claimed that he was only, uh, he only flew on that plane on four occasions. None of them were to this supposed island. Uh, what do the manifests uh, show in terms of former President Bill Clinton? on a number of those flights, and uh, Bill Clinton isn't known for his veracity, uh, so I don't think that we should take Bill on his word uh, when it comes to this particular situation. But is there a discrepancy? It's kind of like he didn't have, it's, it's kind of like he didn't have sex with Monica Lewinsky. Type of right, type of deal. right. But I mean, he says four times. Does the, does the manifest indicate more than four times? Yes. Bill was... Uh, but was seemingly a frequent flyer. He had, he had frequent flyer mileage on the Lolita Express. I've heard the, the number 26 bandied about. Is that in the ballpark, the number of times that he flew aboard that plane? That would be in the ballpark, yes. Right. And does it also indicate in the manifest that he had, on a number of occasions, uh, basically ditched his Secret Service detail to get on the plane? Uh, sometimes there's no Secret Service detail, and sometimes there is. Hmm. So, it could be true that he ditched his Secret Service protection to fly with Epstein. But other times, uh, his Secret Service detail is, is also on Epstein's flight. Right. Uh, I've also read reports that... The idea for the Clinton Global Initiative was actually struck on on board the Lolita Express, and and that uh, the idea may have even come from Jeffrey Epstein. What can you tell me about that? Do you know anything about that? I have not. I I don't dispute it, but I haven't read accounts of it. Okay. Now, um, if we could go back to the the original. Uh, charges in Palm Beach. Uh, so are we going, what, what, what was the year now? Was this 2005 originally? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. Could you just kind of briefly walk us through the chronology leading to his arrest, beginning with, I guess it was a report from a, the parents of a 14-year-old girl that came home with like a, lunch, was, uh, a lunchbox yes, full of money. Well, it was stepmother of a 14-year-old girl. And she eventually got out of her stepdaughter, uh, which, what she was up to with Jeffrey Epstein. And then she went to the police, and, and Epstein is a very wealthy financier with a lot of clout, a lot of respect. So, but the kid, I mean, they took it seriously, but they definitely wanted corroboration from the kid. The kid described Epstein's home, the interior of his home, and also parts of his anatomy. So, at that point, the police started digging into it, and, and they put a, a number of months into this uh, investigation. They were, they were, it was an investigation that they were going gingerly, but they were dedicated. And they ultimately found five girls, underage girls, that would talk to them. And they were in the um, in the search warrant, there are statements of seventeen people. So five of them were underage girls, and then the rest were people that could corroborate the underage girls. And. Uh so when this case was presented and, to, the, to the Palm Beach uh, DA's office, what happened? Well, what happened is the, uh, the state of Florida took over. He, Epstein should have been indicted on five counts of child molestation because there were five girls that initially came forward. So the Palm Beach Police Department which really did a stellar job. I mean, they were, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the Palm Beach Police Department, especially uh, the police chief, Michael Ritter. But uh, he, was, he was a stand-up guy, and he was followed, he was harassed, but he still hung in there with this investigation. And uh, so there are police officers that are really, uh, you know, superlative human beings. And uh, I think he's probably one of them. So they amassed all this information, and they just felt like Palm Beach should have indicted Epstein right there with five counts. But the state of Florida decided to call a grand jury, which is very abnormal, because in Florida, grand juries are generally for capital cases. And the grand jury... Okay, so in the Franklin scandal, there was a grand jury. And I've got the SEAL grand jury testimony um, and a number of the SEAL grand jury exhibits, too. And in that case, it was very, very, that grand jury was very cooked. I don't know if your audience is familiar with the grand jury in the United States, but if you want to cover something up, a grand jury is the perfect place to do it because... A grand jury is, it's not adversarial, it's closed to the public, it's secret, and one special prosecutor presents the evidence to the grand jurors who are just regular uh, citizens that have been summoned for jury duty and they've been funneled to a grand jury. So a special prosecutor only shows the evidence that he feels is germane, and if, if a special prosecutor wants to use a grand jury to cover something up, he can definitely do that. There's a famous quote from a New York judge that said, 
a special prosecutor of a grand jury has so much power over grand jurors that he could get them to indict a ham sandwich. Yes, I've heard that. Nick, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a timeout. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into uh, the initial case against Jeffrey Epstein. Nick Bryant, the author of The Franklin Scandal, my guest right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Nick Bryant, the author of The Franklin Scandal. We continue to delve into the Jeffrey Epstein case. We were talking about the uh, the grand jury, uh, which was struck in uh, in Florida after the uh, an initial charges were brought against Epstein. First of all, the idea that he was charged a single charge uh, for soliciting a prostitute under the, uh, uh, an underage prostitute. Uh, it's just... No, no, it wasn't. He was not charged. The grand jury did not find that. The grand jury uh, indicted him on one count of adult pandering. That was it. Ah. Um, and in the Franklin scandal, you have a similar thing, but it's even more ominous because all the perps uh, walk were not convicted of anything. And the uh, the victims who refused to recant their abuse, they were indicted. So... That's how screwy grand juries can be. Right. But yes, the Epstein uh, grand jury was very screwy because it just indicted. There were five girls, underage girls, that had been molested by Epstein that the police could uh, produce. But uh, they, that particular grand jury just indicted Epstein on one count of Adele Pandry. And at what point? It's carried a five years since. Right, right. And um, at what point? And then he, he, he was he had this sweetheart deal where, well, we'll get into that in a minute. But um, at what point did the the police at Palm Beach, I believe you said uh, is um, Ritter, did he go to yeah. the feds in Washington and say, hey, there's something strange going on down here? Yeah, he uh, he got very upset. And the, uh, the special prosecutor's name was Kirshner. He felt like Kirshner had done a very incompetent job, if not an outright uh, um, cover-up. And he he was quite vocal about the the machinations of that grand jury and Epstein being indicted on one count of adult pandering, because he knew that there were were five girls that they'd interviewed, but he, he knew there were other girls. So that grand jury was basically a ham sandwich. And so he he went to the federal prosecutors and they got involved. And I guess the head uh, of the, the office at that point was the uh, recently resigned uh, labor secretary, Alexander Acosta. So they yes. they moved in. And what happened then after they took over the case? Well, that became that became Kafka's too. The the feds had a list of like 36 Epstein victims. But, okay, now, according to Vicki Ward's reporting, which has been uh, quite phenomenal, she's added a uh, a dimension to this that hadn't previously been added, although I was aware of it. Um, according to Acosta, he was told that Epstein was intelligence and that for him to know any more was above his pay grade. That is the reason why Acosta gave him such a sweetheart deal. Ah. Which turned out, which turned out to be thirteen months in the county jail, and he only had to spend nights there, and they turned it into a suite, and 
Um, yeah. Right. That was, uh, now, now, further to that, that claim that he was an intelligence asset, which, which is, what is interesting uh, is that any deal that would have been instruct by Acosta, I'm sure he couldn't have made on his own. That would have had to gone. That would have had to go straight up through the um, the Department of Justice, I'm guessing, and the Attorney General. Uh, at that time, it would have been George W. Bush's Attorney General. I think it was Gonzalez at the time. Is is that a fair assumption that that deal would have been had to have been approved by the Attorney General, and if not, the President? Um, I would I would say that that's a fair assessment because if you're going to let a child molester walk, I mean, a U.S. attorney isn't going to eat that. Um, Acosta ultimately ended up eating it, but um, but as I said before, Acosta was told that Epstein was intelligence, according to uh, Acosta and Vicki Ward. So uh, it's obvious that there were some people above the U.S. attorney that were telling Acosta to back down, and that would have been the attorney general and possibly the president of the United States of America. So as an intelligence asset, this this horrible, uh, evil um, operation would be to what? Bring in uh, opposition uh, politicians, uh, world leaders, etc., obviously place them in, in the most uncompromising position imaginable, humanly imaginable, uh, and then use that as leverage for whatever political reason. Is that the idea? Yes. And what's really interesting about that is in the Franklin scandal, we saw the exact same thing. There were hidden cameras in a Washington, D.C., a very nice Washington, D.C. house, where the pedophile parties would occur. So, and Epstein... It's been shown now. And, and and actually, when the Palm Beach Police Department first raided his house, um, they found two hidden cameras. Although I think Epstein was aware of the raid and he pretty much cleaned, he pretty much cleaned things out. But he still had two hidden cameras. And we're seeing that there were hidden cameras in other places, too, um, not just at his place on Palm Beach. So, yes, that was it was definitely a blackmail operation. Is that how he made his money? Because some are, are questioning that he was a hedge fund guy at all, that, that, it, that his source of income was through blackmail. Yes, um, I think that a lot of his money could have been made through blackmail. But here's the thing with that. OK, so Epstein is blackmailing very powerful people. And powerful people have access to thugs and assassins. So in a situation like that, these powerful people have to know that there's an organization that's behind Epstein, or else Epstein doesn't last very long. And we, all, and we saw that with the Franklin scandal, too. Um, the, the pimp in Washington, D.C., he was being protected by Secret Service agents. And um, Epstein wasn't protected by Secret Service agents, but I think that the people that who he was the catalyst for compromising were aware that there was a very powerful entity behind Jeffrey Epstein. And that powerful entity uh, still exists, and therefore the likelihood of uh, – I mean, what's going to happen if, if the people behind Epstein, are they going to continue to protect him or are they going to let him 
uh, basically, are they going to leave him hanging in the wind, so to speak? Well, it looks like he's hanging in the wind. I mean, he's been arrested without bail. I think he, according to reports of uh, the bail hearing, he was a little disoriented. Um, so I think that uh, Epstein has been sacrificed. But if that grand jury, that federal grand jury in uh, New York City, was really doing what it was supposed to do, there would have been other people indicted other than Jeffrey Epstein. There would have been other perps indicted, and it did not indict other perps. So I think that that is a, uh, that's a major problem. It shows that there's a cover-up, in effect, with, uh, with Jeffrey Epstein right now. If he names names or names come out, I mean, how explosive do you think this is going to get? I mean, this could this, for example, bring down the British royal family because of uh, an association with or a friendship, really, between Prince Andrew. I've also heard Prince Charles' name bandied about uh, in connection with Epstein. How 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 damning is this going to be? If, if Epstein talks. Uh, it would go all the way up to Mount Olympus. That's for sure. Is it going to change everything? Well, it would be a game changer, but our uh, Attorney General, William Barr, he's very corrupt. So it's really difficult to know um, if this is going to go any further other than Epstein. I mean, remember the Jimmy uh, Savile, well, most of us remember the Jimmy Savile case, what a horrendous monster this person was, uh, but also protected by the BBC, also also an intimate, uh, you know, with uh, the royal family. Do you see similarities between the Jimmy Savile case and the Epstein case? Yeah, big time. Uh, it was, sir, I mean, Jimmy Savile was part of a network that was run by Sir Peter Heyman who was also a pedophile. And that, Peter Heyman was the number three man at MI6, I believe. And they had, it was called the Pedophile Information Exchange. And they even had, Ted Heath was part of that. So Ted Heath, the British Prime Minister, was molesting little boys at that time. And I think that there was also blackmail and Margaret Thatcher covered that up big time. So that was um, really unfortunate. But, yeah, that was very similar to Epstein and very similar to the Franklin scandal. And we've seen networks like that in uh, Belgium. We've seen networks like that in Portugal. We've seen networks like that in Argentina. And actually a network like that was recently uncovered in Italy. So... These uh, power broker pedophile networks are not rare. I mean, they, they're happening. They're, they're u- ubiquitous. All right, let's take another time out. We'll come back. You mentioned Belgium. We'll talk a little bit about the Dutro case uh, as well. Uh, my guest is Nick Bryant, author of The Franklin Scandal, as we discuss the Epstein child sex trafficking case right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show 
with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We're back with Nick Bryan, author of The Franklin Scandal. Uh, Before we proceed, Nick, how do folks get a copy of The Franklin Scandal? They can order one at uh, franklinscandal.com, or they can, uh, if they're... If they like to in- interact with the evil, um, the evil empire, they can order one from Amazon. <laughs> the evil empire, yes. Uh, is there renewed interest in the book now because of the Epstein case? Uh, yes. Um, I, but I think it's more because I was out there in front of the Epstein case pretty much before anybody. And now people are circling back and talking to me. Uh, people that had originally let me uh, wrote me off as a conspiracy theorist are crazy. Um, now they're circling back to talk to me. But I'd already investigated the Franklin Network, and as soon as I started investigating the Epstein Network, I realized pretty quickly that it was that it was the same thing. That it was deja vu all over again. And it all goes to the top. Yes. The uh, the Dutro case uh, you mentioned in um, in Belgium uh, back in the I guess the mid to late nineties, and I remember as he was being uh, hauled off in handcuffs, he basically shouted, you know, sort of exactly that. This goes to the top and so forth. You'll you know it's too big. You'll never you'll never you know you'll never be able to unravel this one or something to that extent. Are all of these related, these cases, are the Jimmy Savile, Dutro, the Franklin case? I mean, is it, is it, are they the same people would we find sort of behind it operating all of these rings? Well, in, with, with Franklin, you definitely had intelligence. And with the network in the UK, that was Sir Peter Heyman. He was number three guy at MI6. So that was definitely intelligence. Now it's coming out that uh, Epstein was intelligence or affiliated with intelligence. And the Dutro case, what's really interesting about the Dutro case is that a number of uh, Belgian police officers and, and people affiliated with law enforcement came out and said that this is a cover-up. And the Belgians hit the streets in the tens of thousands. I mean, that, that was, there was quite a, uh, a protestation. And we're not seeing that in the U.K., and we're not seeing that in the United States. Um, it, that's a little troubling to me. It was, it was very heartening to see that Belgians, you know, hitting the streets in the thousands. And I would really like to see that happen in the United States, and I'd really like to see that happen in the U.K., given that these scandals have been uncovered, and it's really time. Like, in the United States, there's most states have a statute of limitations on sexual abuse. New York does not, but every other state does, I believe. Um, and we ultimately have to abolish the statute of limitations and hold people accountable. If, if the statute of limitations gets abolished, first of all, perps that uh, have operated with impunity for years um, can, uh, can, be, can be pursued with uh, civil litigation and, and criminal litigation, for that matter. Um, so that's where our society 
is really floundering is that there should not be a statute of limitations on sexual abuse. We've just got about two minutes here before the break. This is a short segment. Uh, we'll, so we'll start this conversation now and pick up on the other end of the, the, of the break. But uh, talk to me about, you know, the, 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 the huge number of children that go missing every year. Uh, I mean, is there any way of knowing how many of these children, in fact, are being abducted uh, and caught up in this evil child sex trafficking ring? Not really. Um, they're in the United States, according to the uh, missing persons, uh, there are like 300 stranger abductions in the United States. Um, but there seems to be a lot of kids involved in networks, which, which is kind of interesting. The FBI can tell you how many cars are stolen. But they can't tell you how many kids go missing, uh, which is kind of a strange thing. Right. They don't collect data. You'd have to go state by state. So it's uh, the the Center for Missing Exploited Children. Um, hopefully they can be a little more enlightened and edified about networks like this. I've talked to uh that organization before, and they seem to be a little obtuse about uh, networks like Epstein or Franklin. Interesting. Okay, I've got to jump in. We'll take another quick timeout. We'll come back and finish up with Nick Bryan, author of The Franklin Scandal, as we continue to discuss the Jeffrey Epstein case right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.